listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. Today's scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 to 13. You can find it in the Black Pew Bible under the seat on page 966. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go and he goes, and to another, come and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, good morning, everybody. Uh, anyone in here other than me a firstborn? Yes, yes. Okay, some of you are like, yes, firstborn, that's right. The very worst chore that a parent can ever give a firstborn child is babysitting their siblings. Do you agree with me? Did any of you as firstborns have to babysit your younger brothers and sisters? Did it ever go well? Ever? Uh, yes. You must have had oddly compliant siblings. I'm the first of five boys, and the next four down in descending order are worse, each one. And so when my parents would want a date night to get away from the five of us, uh, they would go, they would sit us down in the living room, and they would say to all five of us, now we are leaving, but that does not mean this is no longer our house. We are still in charge, but we have vested our authority in your older and more holy brother, Joey. So when he speaks, it is as if we are speaking. When he commands, it is as if we are commanding. When he orders, you say, so let it be ordered, so let it be done. And do what he says. Actually, what they said was, Joey's in charge, don't burn the house down. And the instant they left, anarchy. Total anarchy breaks out. And I am the one who's going to get in trouble if none of the things we were told to do before they got back get done. So I'm trying. I'm like, guys, okay, hey, eat your vegetables. And they're like, why would we do that? I'm like, okay, mom and dad are going to be home soon. Please, we got to clean the living room. And they bolt. Or I'm like, I am going to tell mom when she gets home. And as they're running away, they just laugh. 
My words mean nothing, even though they've been infused with the authority of my parents, which I guess probably means my parents' words didn't really mean anything, but that's a whole different story. Um, it, it is, I guess, one thing to say you're in charge, to say you have authority. It's another thing to even act like you have authority, like giving commands. It's a whole other thing to actually have authority, the kind of authority, the kind of power that actually gets something done. Now, we've been working our way through Matthew's gospel, the story that Matthew tells of Jesus's life, and we've spent a good portion of this past year looking at what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, this big teaching section. We've been looking at what Jesus said and how the crowds were just amazed at the authority with which he spoke. But in the last couple of weeks, we've, we've shifted, we've moved from what Jesus said to what Jesus did. Because it's one thing to have authority, to even act as if you have authority. It's another thing entirely to exercise authority in a way that changes things. To follow up your words with actions that move people. See, it's not enough for Jesus to teach us about what life in the kingdom should look like. He needs to also be able to show us or to create that life in the kingdom among us. Why would we trust his teaching if he can't actually bring it about? Why would we trust his teaching about healing if he can't actually heal? And that's what brings us to Matthew chapter 8. If you haven't already turned there, go ahead and turn there, there now. There's, if you don't have a smartphone, there's Bibles underneath the seat in front of you where you can grab it and, and follow along. In the story that we've already read this morning, you know, we come face to face with Jesus' authority. The big word that ends the teaching section, they were amazed at his authority, is now coming up again as Jesus begins healing. It's his authority not just to describe the kingdom of God, but to actually bring the kingdom of God, to make it happen. See, we're at this point in Matthew's narrative where we're asking ourselves, okay, we've heard what he said, but can we trust him to follow through? Can we trust him? Let's jump in. As we jump into chapter 8, of course, you'll notice the immediate context, all the stuff that's been happening right before the story as we've, we've gotten up to it. Jesus has been calling people to live in light of this great news that the kingdom of God, has, has, it, the kingdom of God itself has begun returning to earth, and it's begun its return in him, in Jesus. And he's taught them about what life in the kingdom looks like. That was all those months we spent in the Sermon on the Mount, and Matthew does this interesting structural thing five times in his story of Jesus' life. He has this big teaching section, and then he follows it by a big action section. He says, Jesus is going to teach us about the kingdom of God, and then he's going to live out the kingdom of God. He's going to demonstrate for us, show us what he's been trying to tell us. So we're at this point where we've finished the first big teaching section. Everyone's astonished, astonished at his authority. Now we begin this big action section where Jesus is healing, bringing about that restoration, the wholeness that we kept seeing in his teaching, that wholeness that characterizes the kingdom of God. And, and so Matthew takes 10 healing encounters from across Jesus's ministry, and he puts them here in chapters 8 and 9, a little bit into chapter 10 to show us the authority that Jesus told us he had. 
Authority over sickness and disease. Authority over the natural forces of the world. Authority to show us even who is welcome in the kingdom of God. And who will find themselves excluded. Authority, in fact, is kind of the main point of this particular story, this encounter with the the centurion. So let's jump in, look at verse 5. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, uh, appealing to him. And if you've not interacted with this story before, some of the details may be uh, somewhat opaque. Capernaum was a small town way up north in Israel, north of Jerusalem, up past the Sea of Galilee, like right up on the northern edge of it. And it was a small fishing town. It wasn't all that big. But there were some trade routes and some roads that went through it and around it. And so there's a lot of traffic and trade and travel. And to keep it secure, there's a Roman garrison there, a, a a company of soldiers. And the leader of this garrison is called a, a centurion. It's a Roman military captain who commands, you know, about a hundred other soldiers. Obviously, you can tell from, from the name. And this guy comes to Jesus with a request for help. Now, if we were native first century Jewish readers, we would already be kind of cringing under the tension that is developed in just the first verse, because we have a Roman military captain, a Gentile, an outsider, who comes asking for help from a homeless, itinerant Jewish religious teacher. These two characters, these two guys could not be any more different. The centurion is a soldier, a man who commands hundreds, uh, hundred others. Only the best of the soldiers made it to the rank of a centurion. This guy is a warrior. And they didn't command from the back and send people. When they went into battle, these guys were in front. When their guys went over the wall, they went over the wall with them. This guy is a warrior. He's a, a man who, who can get stuff done, who can command others to get things done. He's a powerful figure. He, he's a man in authority. And to make it worse, his army, the army representing his government, is forcibly occupying Jesus' home country and exacting taxes and all of that from them while holding the Jewish people more or less hostage, saying, you're subservient to us. And these guys could basically do whatever they wanted uh, to anyone they come across, uh, came across. If this was an old Western movie, this guy would show up on the scene with the sun behind him, just dressed all in black, right? Not good news that this guy has shown up. And yet... Somehow, he, he's, this is a guy who hasn't been left untouched by his time occupying Israel. The story is also told in Luke's recounting of Jesus' life. And inclu- Luke includes a whole lot more detail and gives us more of a, of a window into this guy and his actual care and concern for his, his Jewish neighbors. This guy even seems to be somewhat curious about who God is, who Jesus might be. And so when he hears that Jesus is settled in Capernaum for this phase of his ministry, you know, when he's settled in this guy's territory, the centurion sends a message to Jesus, this is verse 6, saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. 
Now, in Luke's version, we find out that this servant is actually uh, very close to him, somebody he cares about deeply. Uh, Centurions weren't allowed, while they were on active military service, they weren't allowed to marry or have children. Uh, They weren't allowed to fraternize with the other soldiers. So really only their household, the servants in the household were their family. And he's, he's got this younger servant. He says, I really care about this guy. And he's sick. He's suffering. And I want some help. But maybe you notice that the centurion doesn't actually ask Jesus to do anything. He just makes a statement. Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. Of course, there's definitely a question kind of buried in that statement, isn't there? Like when, you know, when you tell your kids, I see your room's not clean. Or, or when my wife says, there's dirty dishes in the sink. The correct response isn't, cool. <laughs> right? It means something when your boss says, hey, that report's not done yet. Right? There's, a, there's an ask or a command. All depending on the authority, there's either an ask or a command kind of buried in that statement. And in this statement, this uh, well question within a statement... The centurion is asking for help. Now, what's the correct response to a centurion, Gentile, outsider, Roman military occupier coming to Jesus and asking for help? How is Jesus supposed to respond? Well, that all depends on what you think Jesus is here to do. This is what makes his response really interesting. Look at at verse 7. And he, Jesus, said to him, the centurion, I will come and heal him. Blanket statement, I will come and heal him. Maybe. Here's the fun part about translating the Bible from the Greek it was written into English now. There's no punctuation marks. Um, We don't know if things are sentences or questions, you know, statements or questions, except for the context. And the words you would use to make a question and make a statement are the same words. It's just the rest of the story kind of helps give you the hint of whether or not this is a question. Most folks who have studied this agree this should probably be translated as a a question because Jesus grammatically puts a little extra sauce on the word I. There's a little more inflection there. Like he's, he's responding more along the lines of, shall I come and heal him? Almost a, wait, and you want me to come heal him. For you. Remember who these two guys are. You, soldier, Gentile, a hulking beast of a man whose battle prowess and leadership discipline commands the respect of a hundred other foreigners who are all stationed away from home in this podunk little town of Capernaum where there's They can't get any of the benefits of being back at home, and yet they're following this guy's orders and doing whatever he says at the drop of his hat. You, that guy, you want me. Jesus says, a wandering, homeless teacher. A guy who's preaching about representing another kingdom with another king. He doesn't serve Rome. He doesn't serve Caesar. A guy whose strength comes from his weakness, whose power comes from his humility. Jesus says, you want me. To come heal this guy for you. Now, to, to Matthew's first readers, the people hearing this story in its immediate cultural context, the very fact that a Gentile centurion comes to Jesus asking 
even asking in an extra polite way where you don't actually ask. The, the fact that this guy comes asking instead of demanding, he comes appealing instead of commanding, this is, this is mind-blowing. They would have heard the beginning of this story when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward at him and they would have gone cold inside. This is not going to end well. Occupying soldiers are rarely thought of as good neighbors. They would have expected a a, a conflict, a fight for Jesus to be attacked or, or ridiculed or subjugated somehow. But this centurion, this guy is somehow already being drawn toward God. He's heard about Jesus and he's come to him with an appeal with an ask, not a demand or a command. He says, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at, at home, suffering terribly. Now, again, put, put yourself back in the mind of a first century Jewish reader or hearer of this story. How do you want Jesus to respond to the guy in charge of the soldiers who keep harassing you and your neighbors? How do you want Jesus to respond? With compassion? Well, then I'll come and heal him. Do you want Jesus to respond with incredulity? Wait, you want me to come help? Or would you rather he respond with derision? Okay, what does that have to do with me? And actually, if you were a first century Jewish hearer of the story, you wouldn't be all that wrong if you wanted Jesus to respond with, what does that have to do with me? Just a couple of chapters later, that's almost exactly what Jesus says when a, a woman comes to him, and ask, a Gentile woman comes to him asking for healing for her daughter, Jesus ignores her. And she keeps pestering them to the point where his disciples are like, dude, you have to give her an answer. And he says, all right, fine. I was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. In other words, I'm not sent to her. And yet, there in that story, as in here, The blessings of the kingdom of God flow through Jesus even to the Gentiles, and it's because of their faith. There are only two folks in the Gospel of Matthew who are praised for great faith, and they're both outsiders, Gentiles, one a soldier, one a woman. All right, I'm going to come back to the faith thing in a minute, but uh, for right now, back to the story in chapter 8. Look at verse 8. So the centurion responds. Jesus says, and you want me to come and heal him. And he says, no, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. He says, look, I I, I get this. I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And I say to another, come, and he comes. And I say to a third, do this, and he does it. And while this, this statement, you know, initially sort of feels like, okay, so yeah, that's how hierarchies work, there's, there's a lot buried inside of it because when Jesus hears this, he responds and it says he marvels at the faith of the centurion. So let's unpack it a little bit, see what's inside this statement. Because first, when the centurion comes to Jesus and he says this, I too am a man under authority, he's recognizing that there's a, there's a similarity between him and Jesus, in that both of them are under an authority and both of them are, are capable of exercising authority. Right? It's like, look, I'm also under authority. And see, in the Roman system, ultimate authority came from the emperor, very top of the hierarchy. And it worked its way down 
the military to where this guy is, kind of, you know, mid-level captain rank or so. It worked its way down uh, to the point where, you know, disobedience to this guy isn't disobedience to just him. If one of his soldiers mouthed off or, just, or didn't do what he was told, he's not just disobeying his captain. He's disobeying the entire hierarchy. It goes all the way back up to the emperor. So look, I'm a guy under authority too, and I have the authority to command others. See, when the centurion speaks, it's as if Rome is speaking. And somehow he recognizes that Jesus is also under authority and can exercise authority. When Jesus speaks, he speaks with the authority of God Himself. When Jesus commands, he commands with the power of God. When the centurion speaks, Rome speaks. When Jesus speaks, God speaks. He says, I see how this works. That's not the only similarity. He also sees a similarity between the effects that his words can have on the world and the effects that Jesus' words can have on the world. Uh, he says here, you know, I can say to a servant, go, and he goes, and another come, and he comes, and to a servant, do this, and he does it. He's like, look, in other words, I have the authority to just tell people to do things, and it, it gets done. I don't have to go myself. I don't have to go exercise the power directly to make the thing happen. I have the authority to direct that power to someone else. He says, Jesus, you strike me as being pretty similar. You can also just say, go, and people go. Come, and people come. Do this, and it's done. There's no real need for Jesus to come personally do the work to ensure its completion. All Jesus has to do is speak. He just has to say the word. There's a third similarity. Well, this one's actually more of a difference. Because when the centurion looks at Jesus and he sees, here's my authority and who I can command, here's Jesus' authority and who he can command, he says, when I look at these relative authorities and kind of line them up. He says, Jesus' authority and power is a whole nother order. It is so much greater. He says, look, I, I'm not even worthy to have you come under my roof. Uh, he would never entertain the emperor in, this, in his whatever, small house in a fishing village of 1,500 people. And he looks at Jesus and said, I could never entertain you in my house. Your authority, who you are, is so much higher than who I am. When he lines up their authority against Jesus, you know, the relative hierarchies, he's like, this is a whole nother thing. And when Jesus hears this, all of this buried in this statement, and when Jesus hears this in verse 10, he marvels. This is the word that Matthew uses for it. He marvels. He's extraordinarily impressed, astounded, or astonished. Actually, only twice is Jesus ever described as responding this way to someone's faith. Once is the centurion here where he responds, he sees this faith, and his marveling is positive. I've never seen such great faith. The other time is when he's back in his hometown on a preaching tour, and he marvels at the faithlessness of everyone he grew up with. All throughout the Gospels, it's other folks who are marveling at Jesus over and over again. This, this is the only place where Jesus is the one who's astounded by, by someone's faith. Extraordinarily impressed 
by the faith of a Gentile soldier, a Roman occupier, a, a warrior with a soft spot for the people he cares about, and a warrior with the humility to approach a poor, homeless preacher whose authority he somehow recognizes as being in a class all of its own. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled and he said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Now, obviously, the word faith is an important word. I mean, it's the name of our church. So we take this, this kind of seriously. Faith is an important word and important in how it shows up here in Matthew's story. This is the first time in, in the way Matthew structures all this that Jesus talks about faith or belief or trust. It's the first time it's, it's come up uh, in the whole story so far. And the faith is coming from an outsider, not the insiders to whom you know, Jesus was sent, who should have recognized him. This, the first time we hear about someone's faith is coming from an outsider. Now, we need to be careful not to read too much into the centurion's faith, not to read our own faith backwards into the centurion's heart and, and his belief. Because I don't think he was looking to Jesus or going to Jesus in faith that he was Israel's Messiah, the hope of the nations, the light of the world, the rightful king of all. His faith was more of a sort of a, a practical trust in Jesus's power. Like, I believe that you can do this that you can heal. I believe you can even heal from a distance. There isn't really a hint here about necessarily who Jesus is, except that he recognizes Jesus has an authority that the centurion does not. And it, the word authority comes in here, again, as key, because he's, he's not looking at Jesus uh, and being impressed necessarily by his power. Uh, because Jesus never heals with, like, you know, a magic saying, or some sort of ritual or, or incantation. <laughs> Jesus, he never, he never rolls up his sleeves and says, all right, everybody, stand back. Watch this. Right, he just says a word. Rise. Be healed. You're forgiven. All he does is say a word. That's why it, it all comes down to his authority. And this story here in, in Matthew's gospel is a, a pivotal moment in the whole storyline uh, that Matthew's telling of Jesus bringing the kingdom of heaven back to earth in himself. Because here the, the scope of the rescue begins to explicitly expand beyond just the Jews to whom Jesus is sent in response to this guy's faith, the faith of an outsider, Jesus says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and, and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. That's the great feast at the end of the ages that they're looking forward to. Many will come from east and west. They'll recline with the fathers at this feast, and yet some of the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, they'll be weeping and, and gnashing of teeth. See, it's the shocking faith of an outsider that prompts Jesus to reveal, to introduce this 
shocking revelation of the scope of God's plan for restoring the whole world, for bringing the whole world back to what it was created to be. It's not just about the Jews. It's not just about his chosen people anymore. It's not just about the insiders, the ones who grew up in the synagogue, grew up in the church, who can trace their spiritual heritage all the way back to some great name in the past. He says, in the feast at the end of the ages, at the table with the fathers... The ones who belong to the nation by birth may find themselves on the outside, while the ones who are outside of the family by birth may find themselves invited into the table. And the differentiator, the thing that brings some in and pushes others out, is faith. There's that word again. It all comes down to faith, not just a a generic belief or trust or sincerity in in goodness or the universe or, or a God who expects nothing of you. It all comes down to a person's faith response to the person, the teaching, the authority of Jesus. So if we keep reading in, in Matthew's story, the, the necessity of faith starts to pop up more and more often. Faith, uh, the response to Jesus starts to separate people into two groups. Those who express a faith or a belief, at least in Jesus' power to heal and then his power to forgive. And those who look at Jesus and they, they deny that he has this authority or that he has this power. We're starting to see people be sorted a little bit. But we're also seeing this fascinating sort of movement in Matthew from trying to address the scope of the problem. What's the problem that Jesus came to address? Initially, at the beginning, it it seems like, well, the problem is that God is no longer with us. He's not here. He's not present. And so Jesus comes, Emmanuel, God with us, right? And then the problem seems to be, well, God's with us, but the people are still walking away. So Jesus calls and says, repent, repent. Come back towards the kingdom that is coming. And then it seems as if the problem is maybe a little bit more narrow, and it's what we need better teaching. We need to understand the message that's already been given. And so Jesus teaches and says, Here's how to live in this kingdom. But then the problem seems to narrow again a little bit more. Well, it's it's about we need healing, we're sick, we're diseased, we're infirm, we're possessed, we need to be released, we need to be healed, we need to be made clean. And the problem narrows a little bit more. And then just a few stories after this one, it comes to this point where the problem, it's not that we're sick or disobedient or ignorant or alone. The problem is our sin. The problem is who we are. Just a few stories down the line, Jesus shifts from healing people as evidence that the kingdom is coming to forgiving people as evidence that the kingdom is coming. And then, oh, as an afterthought, to prove that he has the power to forgive, he heals. See, the scope of the problem really narrows down to our, our sin, and, and the healing of sickness becomes that afterthought. And it, it, throughout this section, all you know, faith and sickness and power and sinfulness and authority and trust, all of these themes are, are woven together in these chapters and in this story of the centurion to teach us this one central point, an indisputable idea, that Jesus is... The God who is worthy 
of our trust. Jesus is the God who is worthy of our belief, who is worthy of our faith. Here with the centurion, the outsider, the Gentile, the soldier, where faith is introduced to the story, we see Jesus saying, that's all I'm looking for, is for people to respond with simple trust in who I am and what I can do. So to the centurion, Jesus says, go. Let it be done for you as you have believed, as you have trusted, as you have faithed. Let it be done for you as you have believed, and the servant was healed at that very moment. In other words, Jesus says, I've got it taken care of. You can trust me. You can trust me. So do you trust him? I mean, that's kind of the big question, isn't it? When Jesus says, you can trust me, well, then we got to ask ourselves, do we trust him? Do we have the same kind of trust or, or belief or faith that the centurion has who absolutely believes in Jesus' power, his power to heal, his, how, his power to, to bring wholeness? But even more, because of where we sit reading the whole story, do we trust in Jesus' power to forgive? Because in the same way, we don't want to read our faith backwards into the centurion's story where we, we think that his faith meant he, he understood everything about who Jesus is. I believe in you as, as the crucified and risen son of God. That hasn't happened yet. Uh, we also don't want to read his faith, a simple trust in a, a simple like practical trust in the power of a miracle worker. We don't want to read that faith forward into us. That's not the core of what our faith is. Because Matthew, he, he's moving through this entire story of Jesus' life. We're getting this, I said, we're, you know, we're kind of bringing it to a point where he starts to, to really narrow the scope of the problem to our own, our own sinfulness, our sin. And the focus of that whole story comes down to and, and focuses itself in on the cross. Before Jesus goes to the cross, he teaches about life in the kingdom of God. And he shows what happens when that kingdom breaks in. And we experience healing and restoration and community and, and wholeness. But the closer Jesus gets to the cross, the more he emphasizes the role of faith in forgiveness of sins. Those healing miracles take a backseat. Take a backseat to his teaching and his preaching about how we restore our relationship with God. And at that focal point, at Jesus' death and resurrection, the core root problem of all humanity... Our sinfulness, our sin is dealt with completely, and we can be forgiven. But then if we keep reading, the story broadens itself back out again into the rest of the New Testament as each of us finds forgiveness in Jesus, and then we're brought back into relationship with God. At that point, then we become the agents of reconciliation, of restoration, we become the, the agents of, uh, of community, of wholeness, of the healing that we're all looking for. But it all flows through this core problem of sin and sinfulness. And it's only once that is dealt with then that we can move forward into anticipating the restoration that we all long for. See, the centurion's faith 
in Jesus was a practical faith in a powerful miracle worker who could address an immediate physical need. Our faith on this side of the cross, on the other side of that sort of X shape curve to the story, our faith is, is more than a practical belief in a powerful miracle worker because as much as we want healing, as much as we long for and pray for and, and, and lament for healing for ourselves and for those we love, we, we recognize, having seen Jesus go to the cross, we recognize that our real problem, our true healing needs to go so much deeper. Deeper than our physical infirmities, deeper than our sicknesses, deeper than our sorrows and our pains, deeper than our lost dreams and dashed hopes, deeper than our failures, deeper than our broken promises. The healing we need has to go deeper into the core of who we are. To the kernel of ourselves that is curved inward on itself, reflecting everything just at ourselves, trapped and enslaved by our own passions and desires and our just general human propensity to screw up everything we touch. That's what we need healing from. So we come to Jesus like the centurion, recognizing his power and his authority, but not just for a quick physical healing. We come to Jesus not because we're trying to get life back to normal, but because because we need him to perform a resurrection into a life that will never be the same again. The centurion came to Jesus and found healing for a servant and went back to normal everyday life. And I hope, we don't know, but I hope with a nagging suspicion in the back of his mind that maybe there's more, even more to this Jesus than he thought when he first encountered him. You know, centurions don't show up all that often in the story of Jesus or in the Gospels. When they do, uh, it's always positive, in the Gospels at least. But they don't show up all that often. The next time a centurion shows up in Matthew's story, probably not the same guy. It'd be nice if it was, you know, it'd be a real narrative bow and all that. But uh, the next time a centurion shows up, that soldier goes beyond just the practical reliance on the power of whoever this Jesus guy is. It moves into a recognition of who Jesus really is. The next time a centurion comes on the, the scene, he's standing at the foot of the cross. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly this is the Son of God. So where are you on that sort of centurion's journey of faith? You know, he may have been, and at one point, Jesus simply just was a, a teacher you've heard a little bit, something about, but maybe a little skeptical, like, could the stories really be true? And then Jesus kind of becomes a, a miracle worker, somebody who can get you back something you lost or, or give you something you desire uh, to bring life back to how you want it to be. Maybe he can make you popular. He can get to the job you want. He can find you a girlfriend or, or, or a husband. Uh, you know, he's the one who can fix your financial problems. But ultimately and eventually, all of us have to move towards seeing a Jesus who is the son 
of God, the one who brings final and complete wholeness and healing by dealing first with our sin through his own death and resurrection and then gathering us together so we can be his agents of restoration into the world around us, worshiping God the Father through whom we, with whom we now have a relationship through Jesus as we wait and anticipate the full, the final, and the complete healing to come. So who, who is Jesus for you? Can you trust him? Do you trust him? Father, you show us in the person of your son your, your care, your compassion, your healing, your forgiveness. A healing that we don't deserve, a forgiveness we haven't earned, a restoration from a problem that we ourselves have caused and can never solve. Father, may we, may we see in Jesus a, a man whose authority and power far outstrips our own, but may we also see through that into the Jesus who is your son, who gave himself for us, and through the giving of himself offers us life. And may we find in him the life that comes from trust. Strengthen our faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.